Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. So, two more sessions. That's it. You've been a great audience. Thank you for that. But we are going to jump straight into it today. I'm going to use my time. Every minute I have, we're going to use it to give you uh, truth from the Word of God, and we're going to get into the Word of God a bit more this morning. Let's open in prayer, and we'll jump straight in. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, again for this time. I pray now that again you would just give us ears to hear, Lord, what it is you're saying to the churches. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, use my words now, Lord, and we pray that Christ would get the glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so last time we've looked at the foundation of identity being the Word of God. We've looked at what happens when you leave that foundation. And yesterday we started looking at the fundamental issue of being created in the image of God and we talked about everything that that entails a little bit. And also we mentioned the problem of humanity, that we are indeed fallen and separated from God. Ended up by pointing to our only hope, the person of Jesus. And today we're going to go a step further. You see, those things are common to man, being created and being fallen. Everyone can claim that in this world. Today we're going to move further and talk about what, in a theological class, we would class as positional truth. These are things that become ours when we become born-again believers. So these are things that we add to our identity and we claim as ours because of what we are given in Christ. Um, there are, I'm just picking out four or five of the best ones. You know, there's a list of 33 things I think I discovered that you could add to this. We're just going to do a few of them this morning. The first ones I want to look at are we are redeemed and we are forgiven. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. You see, the message of Christianity is unique, and it is also extraordinary. You see, God does not just forgive, he also transforms the person who accepts Jesus Christ. When we are washed, we are made whole by the work of Christ, and to live with Christ is truly what it means to be human. This is the ultimate meaning that we have in our lives, is to live it in relationship with our Creator. It's our greatest need and it should be our most passionate pursuit. Um, I'm sure all of you know when Billy Graham died just February this year. Um, in the UK, um, obviously he doesn't have quite the, the notoriety that he does in this country, but um, I don't know if any of you read his last will and testament. His last will and testament was public, publicly released. It was a, obviously a huge document, 99% of it's just legal stuff. But the first page of his will and testament was very interesting. It read like this. He says, First I commit myself wholly into the hands of my Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing by God's word that through his shed blood my sins have been atoned for and taken away, and that through his merits I shall be presented faultless in the presence of his glory. Since I was a teenager, I have found joy and peace in believing God rather than trusting the changing opinions of men. It has been my supreme joy to labour to his service. I acknowledge that I have often disappointed him, but he has never disappointed me. I ask my children and grandchildren to, to maintain and defend at all hazards and at any cost of personal sacrifice the blessed doctrine of complete atonement for sin through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ once offered and through that alone. I urge all of you to walk with the Lord in a life of separation from the world and to keep eternal values in view. I urge all who shall read this document to read and study the scriptures daily and to trust only in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. 
And I thought that was a wonderful thing to have on a will that would be read publicly by lawyers. I said to my wife, we need to do some amendments to my will. <laughs> we need to be redeemed. We need to be saved. You see, many people, tragically in this world, they will place their destiny into the hands of those who cannot keep them, hoping to find solace in temporary solutions offered by the world, seeking meaning and fulfilment in positions, relationships and power and all the things that the world offers. But really, the only thing we need is a redeemer. If you turn with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 1, we'll pull out a few things of positional truth from this chapter. Obviously, if you've studied Ephesians, you know many commentaries of Ephesians are titled In the Heavenlies, In the Heavenly Places, because of that phrase that keeps coming up. It speaks of many of our position that we have now, that we are raised up with Christ. We'll jump around a bit. We won't do this in a sort of verse-by-verse format for the sake of time. Let's start with verse 7. Ephesians 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Redemption through his blood. We are redeemed. Now the language of redemption is an Old Testament term. Redemption finds its origin in the story of Exodus, an event obviously that that I'm sure you know is commemorated to this day still during the Jewish festival of Passover. And what we find is that the New Testament uses this Old Testament background, uh, and as it clearly does, we know that the New Testament and the Old Testament, you know, they're not radically separated, like, like sometimes we can fall into that trap of thinking. Pretty much they're fulfilled. Everything we see in the Old Testament finds its fruition in Christ and in the New Testament. The language of redemption comes from Passover, and the New Testament utilizes this foundation and makes a doctrinal argument from this history. You see, the teaching of redemption in the New Testament speaks of, the words that are used for redemption speak of purchasing a group of people from a slave market and and making them free. That's, in a nutshell, all the different words in Greek that you'll find for redemption, if you put them together, that's the sort of meaning that you get. And the background was obviously Passover and Exodus. You remember the story. There was a ransom price that had to be paid and it was the blood of the Passover lamb that had to be applied to the doorposts of the house in order for them to be saved. And obviously, ultimately, this led to the exodus and the crossing of the sea. Uh, interestingly, you, you know that when Jesus instituted the Last Supper, and he was during that Passover Seder, when he picked up the cup and he, he made the new covenant, you know, when he said, this is now, you know, blood of the covenant for the forgiveness of sins, he did that with the third cup. At a Passover Seder, there are four cups that you eat throughout the course of the Seder. The third cup is the one that's taken after supper. In Corinthians, the cup that Jesus used to initiate the new covenant is the third cup. The third cup is known as the cup of redemption. It was the cup that was wine mixed with a little bit of warm water to make it symbolize the blood of the Passover lamb. Obviously, in the Jewish mindset, this is looking back to Exodus. But Jesus now takes this history, he uses it, and he expands on this truth, obviously being the ultimate Passover lamb. You see, the situation of humanity parallels that of the Exodus. One of the things, when you read the narrative in Exodus, you'll find slave, this term slave, slave, you know, the Israelites were slaves to Egypt at that time. And one of the things you'll find when you read Romans, the book Romans chapter 6 particularly, is that the New Testament uses this language to describe humanity. We are slaves to sin. You see, this is Pascal language. This is, this is hope making us think back to the Passover. We are slaves to sin. And likewise, there must be a price paid in order to free us. And that price was the death of Christ. And this is why in 1 Corinthians we have Christ described as our Passover lamb. 
whose blood will set us free from slavery to sin. And specifically, the Bible says that the blood of Christ was our ransom. Again, that's the language of redemption. 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, it's no coincidence that Jesus was crucified during the time when the Jewish people were celebrating the Passover and sacrificing lambs in remembrance of their delivery from Egypt. You see, at that time, God, by eternal decree, ordained that the true Passover lamb would purchase redemption for all of humanity once and for all. You see, this is the truth of biblical redemption, and it is really a beautiful truth. The God of the universe came to earth to live as a perfect human in order that he could die in our place and save us. And it cost him everything. Every drop of his blood that was spilt upon the ground of Calvary that day was done for us, to redeem us to himself. His pursuit of us took him from the throne room of glory to the hills of Jerusalem, where he was delivered into the hands of evil men. And there he laid down his life. He was hated and despised, rejected and forsaken, and nailed to that old rugged cross. All for us. And this cross, this instrument of death, now becomes the eternal receipt that proves once and for all that we have been purchased by God. And this is the truth for human identity. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a blood-bought and forgiven individual, paid for with the highest currency known to man, the blood of God's own dear Son. Nothing can compare to that. We are redeemed and we are forgiven. But it's the riches of God's grace, as it says there in Ephesians. There is so much more to this. We are loved and we are adopted. These are two more things I want to add to our new identity in Christ. We are loved and we are adopted. Let's read verses 4 and 5. Just as he chose us in him, it's Ephesians 1, sorry. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons, through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Now love. Let's talk about love a little bit. Uh, if ever there was an abused and misunderstood concept, it's this. The only way to understand it is to have a proper theological foundation for it. You see, in our culture we watch movies about love, we sing songs about love. Everyone loves to watch these sorts of things. <laughs> I've got my wife in my head when I think about that. <laughs> Yet how many of us actually ask the question, what is love? Should we try to understand love or do we just want to feel love? You see, the search for love is a universal phenomenon on this world. It's something that really seems to burn deep within the human heart. And so it should, because we're created by a God of love and it's fundamental to all free relationships. You see, the vision of love that's so often portrayed in our culture is one that's really heavily influenced by 18th century romanticism. Um, if you know anything about the literature of that era, it was a very, you know, when a lot of poetry was written and things like this, um, it was a sort of a revolt against the rationalism of the Enlightenment age. You see, logically, if we take this concept of love, and it's all about f the feeling of falling in love, you hear that language, oh, I fell in love with them. If that's your understanding of love, then logically what is, the, what is to stop you falling out of love with that person? How many divorces do you hear that said, I just stopped loving them? You see, this is a wrong understanding of love, and it leads to things like this. Passion and desire are all well and good, 
when they are given legitimate expression within the environment for which they were created. I'm not standing up here saying we're against feelings and emotions, they are very important. But you cannot reduce love to that. If that is your sole definition of love, it's inadequate. C.S. Lewis said that love is not affectionate feeling, but a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. I like that definition. A steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. And it's easy to see the pain caused by lack of love. You don't have to look far in this world to see the, the way that lack of love, whether it be broken families and all sorts of things, causes pain and disruption for generations to follow. It's a lack of love. Interestingly, you remember Jesus. was one of the signs of the end times? Now many of us, if you love studying biblical eschatology, you're, you know, you'll be looking at the, you know, the re-establishment of the state of Israel and all these various different prophetic signs that are often taught on. One of the signs that Jesus gave for the end times would be that people's love would grow cold. And really I believe that's talking about the fact that people would no longer be treating each other as human beings. And you will see chaos reign on the earth. People's loves, love will grow cold. There are times when love may be hard. It may require sacrifice. It may be something that you don't necessarily feel like doing all the time. You see, but foundationally, love is a commitment and an action. And sometimes it will be accompanied by intense desires and emotions and passions. But at other times, it will simply be a requirement to lay down your own desires for the sake of those you love, a laying aside of yourself. And we have an example in Jesus Christ of how that is done. There was a missionary called Lottie Moon. Any Southern Baptists, anyone with a Southern Baptist background, you may have heard of Lottie Moon. She was a Virginia native who at 33 she left uh, for China to serve as a missionary with the Southern Baptist Convention. She was passionate about her work. And in 1888, uh, in need of funding, she wrote a letter back to the Southern Baptist Convention asking for them to raise support for her. Uh, It was around Christmas time that she did this, and this is now, you know, that first offering was the first annual Christmas offering. It's now called the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering, something that the Southern Baptists still do to this day every Christmas. And she wrote back asking for funds. This has happened every year since she did that. And it's now known as the the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. And it is the largest source of funding for foreign missions in the world every year. The thing about Lottie Moon is she died of starvation, penniless and emaciated on a boat on the way back to America. You see, she gave all her food, unbeknown to the people who were serving with her. She was serving, it was uh, the time of the Chinese famine one of the, the major famines that they had in China, and she was giving all her rations away to the children that she was ministering to, um, literally starving herself for their life. Now, we can look at that and we can think that's, you know, maybe that's a bit silly, that's ridiculous. Well, you, know, you could do more good if you stayed alive. It's too radical. It certainly defies any of the evolutionary arguments about survival of the fittest. You see, she literally gave everything she had in service of Christ, even her very life because she knew that her life was not her own. But here's the interesting thing about this story. You see, the word for love in Hebrew is ahava. It comes from a root word that means to give. You see, in our culture, we generally like to think of what we can get. We twist it. Love is usually about what you get, the feeling you get when you're in love. It's a very individualistic way to look at it. The true meaning of the word is about giving. But love is about giving. Giving of yourself for another. Lottie Moon, she gave everything. And in so doing, displayed the love of the Father in an amazing way. What do we have? Most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. What does it say? For God so loved 
that he gave. That's a brilliant example of what love is. Just like Lottie Moon. She loved because she was Christ. She had the love of Christ pouring through her. She gave her very life. Brilliant witness and display of true love from the Father. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that none should perish but have eternal life. You see, ultimately, love will affect how we behave, it'll affect how we think, and the value we place upon every human being. Love is intrinsic to who we are as human beings because we are made in the image of God. And love finds its source not in the mind of men, but in the mind of God. You see, this is where the Christian perspective comes into full view. People need love in this world. You know that, as much as, you know, if, you know, if we're, we're proud, we like to say we can stand on our own two feet, but... Love was put into this world for a reason, and we need it. Structures, it's a, you know, something that we all need. The Christian perspective provides the most comprehensive understanding of love ever recorded. It gives both the source of love and the definition of love, as well as pointing to the ultimate demonstration of love. You see, in Christianity, love is not merely something that happens between two people. It is actually an attribute of the living God. 1 John 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is love. The Bible declares that God abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. That the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases and that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards us. You know, Christianity is unique. There's no other religious worldview that have, has words like that in their holy book. You see, love is not just a feeling, it is an attribute of God. And that's why it's so fundamental to who we are, because remember, as we talked about yesterday, we're made in the image of God. And that's why love is fundamental to who it is we are as humans. And it affects everything that we do. But we need to learn some things about God's love. Remember we said that to learn about ourselves, we have to learn about God, because we are the image, made in his image, he is the one we're imaging, it all comes back to him. God's love is unconditional and infinite. But God's love is also holy. It's a holy love. It's not some sort of soppy sentimentality. We are not to be guided by the culture's definition of love. Love is not to be a cover for sin in that sense. I hear this all the time. Oh, God will not do that. He's a God of love. And usually this is used as a way to sort of disregard certain portions of the Old Testament narrative um, or to cover um, behaviour that we feel is acceptable now in, in 21st century. Oh, God won't mind about that. Love is love. You hear these mantras going on. These are operating from a false definition of what love is, a human-centred definition of what love is. We must not fall into that trap. We are Christians. We stand on the word of God unashamedly as our authority. Our definition of love must come from the scriptures, and that goes out to the world. And yes, it will, it will confront people, but this is what the gospel does. The gospel is going to confront people, and love is central to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The love of God is not like this. It's a holy love. It's not controlled by emotions. It is employed in conjunction with the totality of God's being. That means it operates in unison with all of his attributes at exactly the same time. You see, we, we have this tendency, and it's probably, you know, we study God's attributes in theology, you know, we'll take them one at a time, and we study through them. And obviously, there's nothing wrong with doing that, of course, as long as we remember that that's not how they operate. Because if we, if sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking, well, maybe in the Old Testament we see this attribute being emphasised more, than this attribute that we see in the New Testament. And that creates a divide. God's attributes operate in unison all of the time. He has always been a God of love, but he's always been a holy God. 
Those things operate one in one together. Turn with, Isaiah, turn with me to Isaiah 6 quickly. Let's dig into this a little bit more. Isaiah chapter 6, very famous uh, portion of scripture, verses 1 to 3. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, for the whole earth is full of his glory. He saw the Lord on a throne. And here's a vital point to remember about our universe. Okay, because we can watch the news, we can look around us, what's going on in the culture, and like I said, it can be kind of depressing sometimes, it can be confusing, but we need to always remember <laughs> our worldview tells us that there is an occupied throne in heaven and upon it sits the sovereign of the universe. A throne is the furniture of a king. You remember King Solomon's throne? I'll read to you the description. 1 Kings chapter 10. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with refined gold. There were six steps to the throne and a round top to the throne as its rear. And arms on each side of the seat, two lions standing beside the arms. Twelve lions were standing there on the six steps on the one side and on the other. Nothing like it was made for any other kingdom. Now, you know, trying to, trying to picture what that throne would have been like in your head. It's quite, quite amazing, I'd imagine. Twelve, you know, big lion statues and this amazing throne and the king of Israel on the top of it. That was, the, that was an earthly throne. Now, interestingly, <laughs> um, the king of Denmark, his throne chamber is actually based on the design of Solomon's throne. Um, it's <laughs> the throne chair of the king of Denmark, it's not ivory, it's actually made of narwhal tusk. If you know what a narwhal is, it's one of those whales that has like the unicorn horn on it. Um, so the, the actual throne chair is made of narwhal tusk. It's pristine white and it's overlaid with gold. And it was, in th you know, like I said, it was inspired by the biblical throne of Solomon. It's surrounded by three life-size silver lions with gold eyes, manes, rumps. And it's, you know, it's an you can Google it. It's an, amazing, it's an amazing throne chair. Both of these things are quite impressive but they will pale into insignificance to the scene that Isaiah is seeing here because he is seeing now the heavenly throne room. This is a really <laughs> the difference between, you could say, Christianity and atheism. You see, in one there is a universe with a throne and in the other there is no throne. Therefore, they feel free to exalt themselves onto the throne. However, we say, you know, one day they will realise they were wrong about that and there is a throne and they will be made to bow to that king on that throne. It says, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Now, a train is the, you know, the, the robe that trails behind uh, uh, someone of royalty. It signified position, glory, and splendor. Now, the, the idea is, the longer the train, the more glorious and splendid the monarch. On June the 3rd, 1953, millions of people watched the inauguration of Queen Elizabeth II on television. And again, in a very British way, this was done with much fanfare and pomp. She slowly and elegantly walked down the, the aisle of Westminster Abbey and behind her trailed a royal robe of purple silk velvet, 18 feet long, exquisitely embroidered with wheats and ears and olive branches representing priests and prosperity and ending with the Queen's crown cipher. Embroidered by the, the Royal School of Needlework took over three, three and a half thousand hours and it took six maids of honour to support the weight of this magnificent train. And you see things like this, obviously, with royal families around the world. Yet again, this will pale into insignificance. 
No monarch on earth could ever compare with this heavenly scene. The king of all kings is seen here in his celestial palace throne and the train of his robe is so long that it says that it fills the entire temple. This is emphasised to show you the supreme position and power of this almighty sovereign that we have. And the seraphim cry out, holy, holy, holy. Again, the emphasis here is on God's holiness. The Hebrew word kadosh. It means to be consecrated, set apart. It designates the opposite of that which is common. God is sacred. He is utterly unique. And his presence is sacred. He is exalted above everything, all creation. This means there is an unfathomable contrast between what is created and what is divine. And the holiness seems to be a central attribute for understanding all of God's other attributes. That means God's love is a holy love. I'll read you a small quote from Tozer's book, Knowledge of the Holy. He says, Holy is the way God is. To be holy, he does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. He is absolutely holy with an infinite, incomprehensible fullness of purity that is incapable of being other than it is. And because he is holy, his attributes are holy. And that is, whatever we think of as belonging to God must be thought of as holy. God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible and unattainable. He is the absolute quintessence of moral excellence infinitely perfect in righteousness, purity, goodness, and incomprehensible holiness. And in all this, he is uncreated, self-sufficient, and beyond the power of human thought to conceive or human speech to utter. Tozer has a great way with words. We know that God is holy, and we know that God is love. Therefore, we can conclude that his love is a holy love. And a holy love will always seek to encourage holiness in the objects of that love. That's important to understand. This means that his love is a purifying love. It is one that seeks our well-being and it's one that seeks to conform us into the image of Christ. One that is not also not afraid to take corrective action if needs be because that is what love does. Ultimately, we should be holy and blameless before him. Ephesians 1.4 That is the ultimate aim of God's love. And it's also, I like to say to people that the love of God for mankind is the most authenticated event of ancient history. And I say that and people's faces, what? How can love be an authenticated event of ancient history? Follow with me here. Romans 5.8 God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us on the cross. The cross is forever held up by the scriptures as the ultimate demonstration of God's love for mankind. This is not some religious sentiment given as some sort of psychological crutch the cross of Christ is a sure fact of history. That the crucifixion is historical fact is the consensus of modern historians to this day. Uh, historian and scholar N.T. Wright has claimed that the crucifixion of Jesus is one of the best attested facts in ancient history. Liberal scholar J.D. Crossman, who rejects much of what is found in the Gospels, still says that he was crucified, that he was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be. And even the renowned uh, textual critic and, and agnostic Bart Ehrman, he said one of the most certain facts of history is that Jesus was crucified on orders of the Roman prefect of Judea, Pontius Pilate. You see, now why? Why is this the consensus of modern historians, both ones who believe the Bible and those who don't believe the Bible? Simply because the historical attestation for the cross is so strong. We have the writings of ancient Jewish historians, ancient Roman historians, and ancient Christian historians. I won't quote 
for the sake of time, but there are lots of quotes I could give you. All who testify to the fact that Jesus Christ was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Now follow with me. The Bible says that the cross is the greatest demonstration that God loves you. The crucifixion of Christ is one of the best attested historical events. Therefore, we really can say that the fact that God loves you is one of the best attested conclusions in the world, historically. I love that. Now, if this is true, why do so many people still reject the love of God? Well, how can God get us to reciprocate that love? You see, some might be tempted to say that he could surely provide greater and more obvious evidence for his existence. This is an often uh, sort of atheist argument now. If God would just, you know, rearrange the stars to say, I exist, then, uh, then I would believe in him. And, you know, like that, some sort of knockdown argument. You see, <laughs> God does not really want our allegiance based on his power, so to speak. He desires our love in response to his character. And that is the foundation for the reciprocal relationship of love between a saviour. How does a king win the love of his subjects? Now we have this, I believe, in Philippians chapter 2. He lowers himself and humbles himself and takes on the form of a man. If any of you are familiar with the parable by Soren Kierkegaard, it's called The King and the Maiden. This is the truth he's getting at here. I'll read it for you. It's a lovely parable. He says, Suppose there was a king who loved a humble maiden. Every statesman feared his wrath and dared not breathe a word of displeasure. Every foreign state trembled before his power. And yet this mighty king was melted by love for a humble maiden who lived in a poor village in his kingdom. How could he declare his love for her? In an odd sort of way, his kingliness tied his hands. Thus the king might have shown himself to the humble maiden in all the pomp of his power, causing the sun of his presence to rise over her cottage, shedding a glory over the scene and making her forget herself in worshipful admiration. Alas! And this might have satisfied the maiden, but it could not satisfy the king who desired not his own glorification but hers. If he brought her to the palace and crowned her head with jewels and clothed her body in royal robes, she would surely not resist. No one dared resist him, but would she love him? She would say she loved him, of course, but would she truly? Or would she live with him in fear, nursing a private grief for the life she had left behind? Would she be happy at his side? If he rode to her forest cottage in his royal carriage with an armed escort waving bright banners, that too would overwhelm her. He did not want a cringing subject. He wanted a lover, an equal. He wanted her to forget that he was a king and she, and she a humble maiden and to let shared love cross the gulf between them, for it is only in love that the unequal can be made equal. The king, convinced he could not elevate the maiden without crushing her freedom, resolved to descend to her. Clothed as a beggar, he approached her cottage with a worn cloak fluttering loose about him, and this was not just a disguise. The king took on a totally new identity. He had renounced his throne to declare his love and to win hers. Now, obviously, this is a parable. Bear that in mind. It doesn't fit every section. But this was Kierkegaard's, basically, he's trying to explain to people the truth that we find in Philippians chapter 2, which is that, you know, the kenosis chapter where it talks about God, you know, being found in appearance as a man, humbling himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Such a love has moved so many to lay down their lives for such a king. This is a king who would exchange a throne room for a manger and a crown for a cross. A king who would allow himself to be forsaken and rejected for those he longed to save. And ultimately, this is a king who would lay down his life for his subjects. This is why he truly deserves the title King of Kings. There is no one else like him. 1 John 4.19 We love him because he first 
loved us. That's a very important truth. We love him because he first loved us. This is why the message of the cross has inspired such great acts of compassion wherever it goes. Two of my favourite missionary stories, I love missionary biographies, you might have noticed I like historical uh, illustrations. Corrie and Bessie, Ten Boom, I'm sure many of you have read their book, The Hiding Place, you know their story. They lived in Holland with their father during the onset of World War II. They're, obviously the story is famous because they had a, their, their father ran a watch shop, they were hiding Jews behind a false wall in their watch shop as the, as the SS were, were hunting Jews at that time. To yeah, abbreviate the story, basically they were, they were someone told on them. The SS raided their house and they were taken to, Betsy and Corrie were taken to the concentration camps. Before being transferred to the, the notorious death camp Ravensbrück, which was just a women's death camp, Corrie managed to smuggle a Bible with her all this time and she and Betsy clung to God's word as a lifeline. The reason they were there was clear to both sisters and they said, quote, from morning until lights out, Whenever we were not in ranks or in roll call, our Bible was at the centre of an ever-widening circle of help. And they'll tell stories of how they translated little verses of the Bible and would pass them around on scraps of cloth and paper to all the different people that they had in those concentration camps with them. They would you know, have these flea-infested dorms where they would be you know, doing Bible studies. As Betsy grew weaker from the physical toll that was being placed on her, eventually she was unable to get up in the morning for roll call and she began to speak of plans for the future, kind of as she knew death was approaching. She spoke of a home for ex-prisoners of war to recuperate, and later a place for those warped by hate, a place where they could learn to love once again. And finally, the day before she died, she pulled Corrie down and whispered her last vision into her ear, and she said these now famous words. She says, we must tell them that there is no pit so deep that his love is not deeper still. They will listen to us, Corrie, because we have been here. Three days later, Corrie was called, you know, Betsy died. Three days later, Corrie was called into the, uh, into the headquarters and she was given a piece of paper that simply said, released, on it. And she was set free. Fifteen years later, she discovered that this was simply a clerical accident. Her number was meant to go on the list that was intended for execution. One week after Corrie was released, Every woman her age was killed in that concentration camp. Corrie fulfilled her sister's vision. She opened a home for victims and a rehabilitation centre for Germans in, an ex in a former concentration camp. And finally, she started a worldwide ministry that took her to over 60 countries in 33 years to proclaim what her sister knew, that God's love is indeed deeper still. To paraphrase Isaac Watts, a love like this is so amazing, so, dim, so divine, it demands our soul, our life, and our all. This is the love of God. We are redeemed, we are forgiven, and we are loved by an eternal, infinite, and holy God. But it doesn't stop there. The riches of Christ are so much richer than this. We are also adopted. It says, Ephesians 1, 5 and 6, In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the kind intention of his will. You see, one of the most cherishing and comforting truths in the Christian faith is that of adoption. This is the specific teaching that when a person becomes a Christian, they are adopted into an intimate and loving family. Father is an utterly unique designation for God, reserved for God's children in the Christian faith alone. God's heart is always for the fatherless. The Bible declares that God is a father to the fatherless, a defender of the widows. 
and that Christians should defend the weak and fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed, Psalm 82. You see, I'm sure you've, you've all seen or read reports about the, the crisis of fatherless generations, you know, the broken homes, crime rates, all these sorts of things. There were hundreds of studies on these. They all pretty much indicate the same thing. In my country, anyway, I'm sure they're, sure they're mirrored over here. The gospel is the answer to this. Okay, the gospel is the answer to a fatherless generation. 2 Corinthians 6, God says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so are we. You know, and I'm emphasising this because, look, you may know, I love apologetics. I deal with apologetics all the time. It's a very useful tool and it can bring people to faith. It helps them to look at the cross. But one of the most powerful apologetics is the love of God. It should control and constrain everything that we do or say as we mix with this world, as we represent him. Because remember, we are made in his image and we are imaging him. This is why the Bible tells us to walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called. We'll talk about that in our next session. Relating to God as Father and understanding this principle of adoption is essential to understanding the uniqueness of Christianity. J.I. Packer put it in his book Knowing God. I bumped into someone in the coffee shop reading this the other day. It's a classic book. He says this, You sum up the whole New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well. And we need to take that to heart. If we do not understand the truth of adoption, we are robbing ourselves of one of the greatest truths that we have contained within the scriptures. The fact that we are adopted by this holy God. It's unbelievable. In adoption we are placed into God's family. It says the Bible says we, you know, we are predestined for adoption through Jesus Christ. It is the role of the Holy Spirit to witness to this adoption. And it says that we are given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our sonship. Verse 13 of Ephesians 1. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So not only are we redeemed, forgiven, loved, adopted, chosen, we're also sealed. He goes on to say in verse 14, the Spirit is given as a pledge of our inheritance. So all those things, and we're still given an inheritance. Romans 8, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified. As a Christian, you are an heir of God and a fellow heir with Christ. It says in 1 Peter that you have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You see, this inheritance contains many things, many things that really can't be described with pen and ink. The Bible calls them the unsearchable riches of Christ. And as a co-heir of Christ, you are privileged to share in everything that the Father has given to the Son. Now, what is this? It's hard to, hard, hard to delineate, to be honest. Hebrews 1 says this, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. All things. Everything. It means just that, I believe. Quite literally, 
everything that will survive when Christ comes back to this earth. I believe that includes all the facets of our salvation, the redemption, the justification, the forgiveness, the mercy, the grace. It also includes our adoption, our inheritance, our sealing by the Spirit. We are his and he is ours. It includes the future glorification of our bodies, our eternal life and our existence of ruling and reigning in the kingdom that will come when Christ comes back to this earth to rule and reign. Everything. Quite literally, by a sheer act of God's undeserved grace, we are given everything that belongs to Christ when we are redeemed. This is why knowing God, finding our identity in him, seeking his face should be the most important thing in our lives. Psalm 27 verse 8, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Your face, Lord, do I seek. This reminds me of Fanny Crosby, that great woman of faith who wrote over 9,000 hymns. She was blind very early on in her life. And she once, when she was, she was a great piano player, once she uh, overheard someone say to her as she was playing to the piano, she heard them say, it's a shame that God would take away the gift of sight from such a talented woman. To which she turned and she replied, If I had it my way, I would have been born blind. For when I get to heaven, the first face I would ever see would be that of my Saviour. Yes, Lord, I seek your face. This is ultimately where all the mystery of life lies, in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this time. Lord, and we just thank you for, for Jesus for everything that he's done, Lord, for everything that he's given us, Lord. We deserve none of it. It's an act of your sheer grace, Father. I thank you now, Lord, and I pray that this would equip us and edify us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, please go to thomasfretwell.com.